God is not Zeus. He's not some malevolent being that desires to strike people down with lightning bolts. He has always warned mankind of the dangers of particular behaviors. What if God was wishy-washy and went back on the words that he spoke? Or worse yet, what if he never bothered to give us boundaries until we meet him face to face? From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. We're glad you've taken some time to join us. My name is Chris Weigel. The unique, rugged terrain that makes up the part of the United States we call Appalachia has had a developmental impact on that region since the very beginning. Put simply, communities in Appalachia are insulated. Up until the advent of cable television and then ultimately the internet, not much information got into Appalachia and not much got out. On this Level Paths podcast, deconstruction in Appalachia. Evangelical deconstruction is an idea that picked up steam in the 1980s. The movement hadn't made its way into Appalachian churches like it had in larger and more transient population centers. But again, today we have the internet. So how do we combat deconstruction? Here's Rex. Welcome to the Level Paths podcast. My name is Rex Howe, and I serve as the president of Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio. I'm here with two of my colleagues today, but before we introduce them, I want to put a date on your calendar. Tuesday, April 23rd, 2024, is our third annual Appalachian Ministry Conference. We're very excited about the conference this year. We are exploring a pre-conference the night before. We'll talk more about that in later days, but just some really exciting folks who are going to be participating with us. Another opportunity to learn how we can be encouraged in ministry in Appalachia, ways we can be equipped for ministry in Appalachia, and being together, firming each other in the work that we're doing for the gospel in Appalachia. So I hope that you'll put that on your calendar, circle it, and plan to be with us on April 23rd. Also, here at Tri-State Bible College, we are approaching the end of the year, and I like to encourage folks to consider adding Tri-State Bible College to your generous donations at the end of the year. We are right now thinking about how local churches can help the ministry of Tri-State Bible College. Right now, we have 32 active churches who give to the school. And if we had 168 more, that would put us at 200 churches. And if those 200 churches gave $2,000 a year, our finances would be stable. And that's really, really important for the future of Tri-State Bible College. So pray about that. Talk about it at your churches and consider supporting Tri-State Bible College in your monthly uh, support of missions and consider Tri-State as a local mission in Appalachia that you could support. Now with me today, uh, my colleague and partner, Dr. Matt Shamblin, our Appalachian Research Fellow. Matt, Merry Christmas, brother. Merry Christmas, Rex. It's good to be together again. I want to emphasize before we go on, how important the ministry of Tri-State Bible College is. This podcast and those that you're going to hear from today on this podcast all come through the ministry of Tri-State Bible College. Our Bible College is uniquely situated right in central Appalachia. Almost all of our faculty are from Appalachia and help 
equip students to minister and evangelize in Appalachia. Any amount helps, but it would be wonderful if those churches would take us on as a mission, like so many do, and we're so grateful for that. You know, today we're going to talk about something that in the past been a phenomenon that we've seen in larger cities and more popular kind of Christian stars, if you will. Recently, my brother-in-law sent a text message, and he notified me of a podcast from a local pastor. This was a pretty prominent local pastor who was no longer serving in a church, and he said, have you listened to this? And I hadn't. I'm always interested in what pastors are doing, where they're going, what's going on with them. And this was a guy that had kind of fallen off my radar. So I listened to the podcast, and it really is a podcast about him deconstructing his faith. And that is a phenomenon that we've heard from popular Christian stars, but not local pastors, not local folks. And so now in Appalachia, what has seemed in the past to take a long time to impact Appalachia, we're seeing it in Appalachia. And so I thought this would be an appropriate time to get together as we're concluding the year to sit down with uh, Dr. Mark Phillips, who's one of our faculty here at Tri-State Bible College, and talk to him about this phenomenon of deconstruction. And so, Mark, welcome again to the Level Paths podcast. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's good to be back. My uh, interest was piqued when I got the text about speaking on this subject. It is somewhat at the forefront these days with the field that I studied in, which is apologetics. To help clarify for our listeners what we mean when we say uh, deconstructing, I'd like to nuance a couple of terms or describe a couple of slightly different things that undergo a similar process. We have deconstructing of faith or deconstruction. That's when someone who was probably raised as a Christian starts questioning the doctrines they were taught. And we can go into which ones seem to be the hot button issues. And as a result, if we nuance our understanding, deconstructing does not always lead to deconversion. Deconversion would be a process where the end result is you walk away from Christianity entirely. Deconstruction means either unlearning or rejecting doctrines you grew up with. For example, it could be denominational doctrines. It could be more specific Christian doctrines, essential Christian doctrines. In deconstruction, it can also lead to a changing of denominations or moving your position from more conservative Bible Belt Christianity to a more progressive Christianity. There's deconversion and there's deconstruction. It's not uncommon to mean the same thing using either of those terms. That's kind of been the theme of this guy's podcast. I don't I don't want to attack anybody. The theme of the podcast really was a deconstructing from a very conservative Christianity to a far more progressive Christianity. Dr. Phillips, it seems as though in these times, though there is a, a rethinking of faith, it's a rethinking of foundational big rock, big block elements of faith. Is that true? Yes, I've got an example, a fairly well-known example of deconstruction that led to deconversion. There's a song that came out 
uh, in the first decade of this century. The title was I Am a Friend of God, and it was sung by Michael and Lisa Gunger. They went through the process of deconversion, and they have a, a fascinating video, or she does on YouTube. It's fairly famous by this point. What had happened, according to Lisa, is they, at such a young age, were placed into a position of music and worship ministry to the point that they could afford a house at practically the age of 20. They were in a very prominent ministry being worship leaders. And this led to a recording contract and traveling internationally. And there was a moment when they went to Europe and on their time off toured one or two of the concentration camps. And being the age that they were, it suddenly and rather forcefully occurred to them that there is great evil in the world as a result of sin and man's fall. And it was difficult for them to wrap their head around how a good God could allow such terrible things to happen. And this is a classic example from which theologians create explanations for why a good God would allow such things as happen. The technical word is a theodicy. And so that was the Gungers' experience. They moved from questioning what they had been taught. I don't know if Lisa deconverted. I do know that Michael did. He did come out and say one day he stopped believing in God because of that experience. So that's one example that's fairly famous. And there have been a number of contemporary Christian and praise artists that have walked away from the faith. So just for discussion, it seemed to be at the time, seven years ago and before, that it was typically the problem of evil or this issue of why God would allow suffering. The same thing that Job and a lot of the ancient Near Eastern documents covered. However, since the middle of the last decade, about 2015, 2016, the overwhelming claimed reasons for deconversion are rejection of biblical sexuality. That seems to be the dividing line now because of uh, the response of conservative Christianity to our culture's current understanding of what human sexuality is and how it should look. So it's moved from doubt to rejection in a good number of cases, and it is directly related to culture, social media, issues of that sort. So that kind of opens up the area where we as, as pastors and ministry workers need to be sensitive to questions that the people we minister to, the questions they have and how we respond to them. Which really brings me to the question or the thought that Appalachia is really ripe for deconstruction. And let me explain to you why I would say that, and I'd love to hear your comment on it. Because at one point, I'm told that Appalachia was an extremely evangelized place. And the statistics even today would show that, that around 90 some odd percent would claim to be Christian. They would self-identify as Christian in Appalachia. But we have a tragically low number of church attendance. I think here in Boyd County, the number is 90-some percent self-identify as Christian, and church attendance is less than 6%. There is 
a head-on collision then in one, what is a Christian and what is expected of a Christian. And so because of that, we know that in the past, Appalachia was very influenced by Christianity. All you need to do is walk through a cemetery and look at the headstones and see the scripture on the headstones. And I I know one of the popular ones is a, a hand, just a single hand pointing up to pointing to the one way to heaven. A a friend of mine is an evangelist. He does a lot of training for evangelism and has that on a card. But something that never happened in Appalachia was genuine discipleship, that we have lots of people having emotional conversions, an emotional event in their faith, but yet never being rooted in their faith. And because of that, And Appalachia, a faith that's rooted in emotionalism and not rooted in biblical Christianity, seems to me to be ripe for deconstruction. What would you say with that, Dr. Phillips? I would affirm that view. Barna just released a figure two weeks ago that only 1% of American high school students have a biblical worldview. And I about fell out of my chair when I saw that. I knew it was low. I knew there were concerns about it. Now, it may be higher still in Appalachia. We're still insulated to a degree. The hills and the hollows still have a sense of morality when it comes to right and wrong, sometimes a sense of frontier justice. But now we there's access to the world through cell phones, and Appalachia still has its issues that it's always had, and now we've got a new layer heaped on top of it. The faith of our grandparents, which may not have been as sophisticated or well-educated as people are today. But when it comes to the faith, you don't have to be a seminarian to be saved. But Christianity, unfortunately, it seems has become just one more voice in the world of competing voices in the marketplace. The message is not necessarily popular with some of the misconceptions about the faith. So it seems like from a standpoint of evangelism, You look at Francis Schaeffer 55 years ago suggesting that pre-evangelism would have to take place before evangelism. We've gone down so far in just a basic knowledge of biblical doctrines or what the Bible really says. And when our younger residents here are spending so much time on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram, that it's easier for messages to come in through that way, which are completely inaccurate, unfortunately, to what Christ really desires for us and desires for our good. And it gets twisted to be an idea of God desiring to keep people from having fun, which is kind of where a lot of this uh, rejection of things comes about. Let me grab hold of two threads and pull them together and then hand them over to you, Mark. Some recent reading about Appalachian Mountain religion has me thinking about a tendency to resist things like liberation theology. Now, not totally, not totally, but definitely, and I'm talking about Appalachian Mountain religion, not necessarily Christianity, okay? So, the religious nature of the Appalachian Mountain person resists things like language of victimization. Even if it's true that that there has been oppression, abuse, whatever, there's still a resistance to 
that language and then theologically how you want me to move because you think I'm that. How does that come up against something like a movement such as deconstruction, deconversion? Okay, so that's one thread. And then the other thing I want to pull into this is there's a blogger, Roger Hicks, My Appalachian Life. He interviewed Loyal Jones back in 2017 and asked him, you know, what do you think about what you said in your book? How has it aged? So on and so forth. And one of the things that Loyal Jones said was he doesn't think that Appalachia is as a religious place as it once was. So pulling that thread, Mark, and then pulling this other thread of resistance and panning those over to you, how are Appalachian people responding, going to respond to deconstruction, deconversion, even if the rest of America is kind of going that way? Well, I think one of the factors, and I'm glad you brought that up, because that spurred me on to something that I had been studying recently. One of the areas that may be more prominent between Appalachia and the rest of the world is if someone has become steeped or brought up in more of a transactional approach to their faith, that if they say the right thing or pray the right thing or act the right way, that will lead to God's blessing them if they say the right approach, you know, say the right words. And that is one of the marked factors in a number of people who believe that God didn't respond to their efforts, therefore he must not be concerned, or they have some faulty understanding of God and his attributes and what he's like, because they treat the relationships in a transactional way. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. That doesn't work in life, and it doesn't work in Christianity. And in some ways, that's Appalachian life. They were so heavily dependent on one another that Mm. you were expected to pull your weight Also, if it's more less of an understanding of what grace is really like, I think back to Bible school when I was a kid and how we took popsicle sticks, glued them together, and then we put a mimeographed cutout of the Ten Commandments in the frame, right? Now, the Ten Commandments are just fundamental morality. There is still a heavily developed sense of right and wrong in Appalachia. But as we move through the New Testament and come to an understanding of grace and what righteousness really is in Christ, it is an understanding that He is our righteousness, not the way we perform. I look back and looking at the other thread, the religiosity has waned, but we still see the remnants of the Judeo-Christian morality. I think people here have a strong desire for justice, which all people do, but it's, again, the Appalachian people have been wronged in so many areas of their lives over time, be it the companies they worked for a hundred years ago, mineral extraction or timbering, and, and just sometimes the distrust that builds up. You know, there's always been movies within the culture about distrusting pastors. I just saw the one on Turner Classic with Robert Mitchum. Whoever wrote it evidently had spent time in in West Virginia. And I say that as a native West Virginian, so I'm I'm clear on that. But again, there's several common threads, but if you're looking for one that is defining and stand out, it's really a thousand paper cuts that lead to deconversion, deconstruction. It's really a number of issues. So to try to single out one root cause, there's a lot of common things that happen. One of them is religious trauma whatever that gets defined as. If if someone had a strict upbringing or if they were in 
the position of a pastor that was rather strong-willed. I think everyone knows what I'm getting at here. So there's a number of, any number of reasons, but what we were discussing before this idea where everyone at least admitted to being a cultural Christian, I don't think there's that impetus anymore. I don't think there's a, a reason for people to portray themselves as Christian when they're not. There's no benefit to it anymore. It used to be 70 years ago, you would be looked at with shame or looked at strangely if you don't profess to be Christian or you might lose a job opportunity. Now there's just no, I hate to say it, benefit in portraying yourself as someone you're not. When I went away to Liberty University for college, I came from the Elk River. Almost immediately, all the people around me talked funny, and I was the only one that had to, that was as plain spoken. I say that in jest. I remember sitting in a class in the religion hall, Liberty University, and really feeling out of place. And there was one particular professor. It seemed as though he made it a point to make me feel out of place because if you come in with an accent like I do and a background that I have, you couldn't possibly be intelligent, articulate. I remember walking out of that class on a regular basis and would walk past a little display case. And there was a display case there that had saddlebags and a Bible and and some other things from a pastor from this area where I where I serve now. His name was B.R. Lakin. He was an evangelist. In fact, the height of his fame, he became a pretty world-renowned evangelist because he later went to Indianapolis and pastored what was really the largest church in the nation. And they had a very high-wattage radio broadcast that would go across the nation. And so he had quite a bit of fame. And I was reminded when I would walk past that, that this is kind of what I'm going to call Appalachian shame. Appalachian shame is when you talk uh, with an Appalachian accent, when you have been shielded from the world as Appalachians have been up until recently, uh, the rest of the world looks at you as a person living out of time. You're a person from a different world. And I remember going to my grandparents' house and going there, they had three television channels, which we did too. Actually, they had two. We had three because we lived in the big city of uh, the Elk River. And, you know, the rest of the world was a long way away. But with the advent of the internet and having the world, as you said, at your at your fingertips, all of that changed. But I'm not sure that the Appalachian shame has changed because Appalachia does have a long held, and as Rex has pointed out, rooting in Appalachian mountain religion. And some of that is Christianity. There is a pressure that came from the world to come up to date for Appalachians. And there's no question that there have been those, not just in Appalachia, but outside of Appalachia, that have misused Christianity. And so now I think it's really time that we shift gears. How is it that we respond to all this? I think we've established that Appalachia is ripe for deconstructing. And so how is it that as a pastor that we respond to that? Well, I will tell you as a pastor, as an active pastor, one way that I have responded to that is to resist the temptation of believing that what may have been effective in church ministry and pastoral ministry for the last 50 years may need to have some deeper roots. What I'm finding is that when we turn to the scripture and show that, in fact, God does answer these questions of 
gender identity, of biblical sexuality, of right and wrong, of truth, that it doesn't repel people, but rather attracts people because there's a struggle for a worldview. And that when we root that worldview in the Bible, as some have said, bringing the Bible to bear in life, when we bring the Bible to bear in life, people respond to that because, yeah, you're going to say things that's going to be radically different from what they're hearing on social media, what they're hearing on television and on and on the agendas that's being pushed. But we have to remember that as pastors, as preachers, as evangelists, God has told us to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That's Paul's admonition to Timothy. And as Paul gives this, there's this expectation that we're not just contending for the faith, the reason for the hope that's in us, but that we're joining in the work that God is doing and that God is working in ways that we could not imagine. You know, my wife and I, I'm going to show my hand on this just a minute. My wife and I were watching a show. <laughs> I hate to admit this. It's a matchmaking show. And they had this man on there, and he was so nice. And he and his father, they had such a this incredible relationship. And he is a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, and so was his father. And so let's just make sure we're clear. The Cleveland Clinic is the top heart center in the world, not just in America, but in the world. And here is this cardiologist. So I'm going to go ahead and venture to say, if you're a cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic, you're one of the top cardiologists in the world. He's a young man. He's single. And so they're working to set him up. And at one point, here's this incredibly learned, capable, nice, wealthy, articulate, and he's trying to rid himself after he talks to an astrologer, he's trying to rid himself of the bad spirits, of the bad omens. I'm sure I'm I'm not putting all that together correctly. And it occurred to me, just a simple scene from a matchmaking show of all places, that people develop their worldview, the way they see the world, the way they approach the world, the answers that they have. No one does that in a completely logical way. It's not all based on science, even if you're a top scientist. And so there is an amount of questions that have not been answered. And so when we bring the Bible to bear in the life of a person, there's a recognition. Yeah, you may have people who scoff at what you say, but so too was the Apostle Paul, who was incredibly intelligent, scoffing at what the Christians had to say until he met God. So too was James, who literally lived with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is growing up years, and when Jesus is risen from the dead, he trusts Christ as his Savior. And so we can never dismiss the importance of bringing God's Word to bear in our own lives and in the lives of others. And so when we look at this, I'm just reminded of the importance of preaching the word, being ready in season and out of season, and recognizing that maybe what got us into this mess of just telling them how to get saved is not enough to confront this deconstruction. Dr. Phillips, am I wrong in saying that? No, I don't think that's overly simplistic at all. First of all, we are our true selves when we are genuinely approaching others in love about Christ. So there has to be a genuineness in our approach with no hypocrisy whatsoever. And one of the other things that we can be aware of is that 
certain aspects of non-Christian worldviews usually collapse under their own weight. If you deny the reality of biology, there are inevitable consequences that catch up with you. There is opportunity in being genuine persons in a relational approach to our evangelism and conversations. You know, as someone who has studied a great deal of apologetics, you know, just as we can't pray someone into heaven or preach them into heaven, we can't argue them into heaven with apologetics. It's just part of the bigger discussion of the reality of how God created this world and gave us instructions for our good, not to limit our pleasure, as some would say that every person does bear God's image, that it has been marred by sin, whether you are saved or not, that Christians don't always act right or honorably represent Christ, but that doesn't change who he is. So there are uh, a number of things that just to be aware of, particularly in Appalachia, it is to Appalachian's benefit that they can usually spot someone who's not genuine. <laughs> and the thing is, if you are genuine and stand on your convictions, regardless if someone disagrees with those convictions, you can still hold them and still love the image of God that is present in others. I'll leave you with a quick story. And this is one of my favorite stories. When I was four, I used to have my own little toy lawnmower that I'd go around the yard behind my dad when he mowed. You know, I wanted to emulate my dad. He had turned the mower off and was sweeping off the clippings from the deck of the mower. And he looked at me and said, do not touch this mower. It is hot. Now, that was the example of a good dad warning me that certain behaviors were to my detriment. And of course, you can guess what I did. And you should have seen how quickly that blister came up right on the heel of my hand. And he dragged me by my good hand into the house and yelled, Nadine, Mark didn't listen to me. He didn't show much sympathy, you know, on the outside, but I knew he was a little bit concerned. But one of the things we have to do is getting back to God, a proper understanding of him before we even get to the person of Christ, that God is not Zeus, that he's not some vindictive, malevolent being that desires to strike people down with lightning bolts, that he is, he's awesome, <laughs> and he is good, and he has always warned mankind of the dangers of particular behaviors. Because I ask this question sometimes, what if God was wishy-washy? and went back on the words that he spoke, or worse yet, what if he never bothered to give us boundaries until we meet him face to face? But he does give us boundaries for our good, because that's usually the questions that come up. They're going to be basic questions about why does God not like such and such, or something out of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. It's going to be some aspect that way. But again, it comes back to his being good and setting these guidelines and recognizing that the reason we have the gospel is that everyone needs to hear it because everyone is flawed because of the fall. So I think it's just a matter of approach. I mean, there's no magic 
potion, no magic words in apologetics. It's just a fundamental approach of meeting people where they are, being genuine, and speaking the truth in love. Amen. A couple things I want to grab onto there. Number one, the grace. Grace is like our most powerful superhero power as Christians <laughs> that the Lord has poured into our lives that comes from him and through us out to others. But really, God also is, he has perfect justice. So all of that evil in the world, and that even comes through in his commands and his warnings. He's a God who understands evil, understands its destructiveness. I think that's super powerful. And and to those who are faithfully laboring in Christian ministry, I read last night to my kids. They're asking me to read every night right now because we're into the little bit beyond middle of Prince Caspian. And they've been wandering uh, through Narnia and they're trying to find a way over the river and they just can't find it. And then they get some arrows shot at them and whatever. And the big part of the problem for the group, for the party, is that Lucy is the only one who sees Aslan and they won't believe her at first. And slowly, as they trust what Lucy witnessed in Aslan, their eyes start to open. More people start to see. I think that for those of us laboring in Christian ministry, keep your eyes on Jesus. Other people will start to see as we keep our gaze firmly fixed on Christ. Here we are at Christmas season, brothers, and what a call right now to keep our gaze firmly fixed, to be deeply rooted in discipleship. That can bring the grace and the justice needed for some of our friends who are deconstructing right now. Well, it's been a good discussion on our Level Paths podcast today. This has been such an, a pertinent conversation because this is something that's ever-growing, and looking to the Scriptures for the answer is never the wrong place to go. And we have a, a greater responsibility now than ever before to bring the Scriptures to bear in the lives of others. And as Rex has pointed out to us, and doing that in grace, recognizing that no heart is changed by greater dogmatism or belligerence, but it comes by the work of God. One notable trait about Appalachians is that they have a strong sensitivity toward hypocrisy and disingenuous living. So, effective evangelism requires a genuine approach. There is no room for hypocrisy. This is true especially today of the age demographic from about 20 years old to the late 30s. This age group is acutely attuned to genuine relational conversation, and they can spot a phony from a mile away. Deconstruction and deconversion in Appalachia. Is your ministry seeing this trend? And more importantly, is there a method in place for preventing its spread? Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin are ready to help. Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute exist as a resource. And no matter what need you may have, Rex Howe and Dr. Matt Shamlin want you to reach out to them today. Rex Howe is the president of Tri-State Bible College. You can contact him by email at rex.howe at tsbc.edu. And you can reach out to Dr. Matt Shamblin at the Appalachian Ministry Institute by email at matt.shamblin at tsbc.edu. The Level Paths Podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute.